This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Um, it just occurred to me, I don't know whether Dr. Mukherjee minds, that we're pl- our plan is to overthrow the Emperor of All Maladies, which is his book. But starting from that point... Um, As those of you who know who have attended earlier programs in this series, the Ethics Center is dedicated to creating community dialogue about the ethical challenges that arise in the development of cutting-edge science and implementation of new technologies. To do so, we convene programs in which the public can hear about exciting new developments, and the scientists and members of the community can together identify those challenges that might impede scientific development and propose solutions. This year is the third in which the Ethics Center has developed a group of programs with a focus on a single book. This evening is the fourth in this year's series, inspired by Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, Emperor of All Maladies. Those of you who have read his book know how easy it was to make it the focus for our program this year. Mukherjee addresses a topic of supreme interest to all of us. It is undoubtedly uh, among the most comprehensive reviews of what we know about cancer, and it is incredibly well-written. I'm now pleased to introduce Dr. Dean Nelson, founder and director of the journalism program at Point Loma Nazarene University. He has written widely for numerous national publications, but is particularly well-known for his interviews of book authors for the annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea. Please join me in welcoming Drs. Nelson and Mukherjee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. He introduced us as doctors, but as my kids say, I'm not a real doctor. You, you, I think <laughs> and I'm also pretending. Yeah, you're, you're pretending. <laughs> Dr. Mukherjee, let me start this way. After reading your book, Emperor of All Maladies, I have a brand new appreciation and respect for cancer. I, I also have a sense of inevitability about it. It feels like after reading your book, it's here. It's always going to be here. Um, there's this line in there that in your book, the cancer cell seeks immortality. Is that an accurate assessment that we're, it's just here? Well, so it depends on what, as, as Clinton would say, it depends on what your meaning of here is here. <laughs> uh, well, it, it just feels like cockroaches, right? You know, the, the whole world could end and we're still going to have cancer not... and cockroaches. <laughs> And Coca-Cola. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> to complete the alliteration, yeah, thank you very much. Coca-Cola. But, uh, but no, but, 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 but perhaps more, uh, more importantly, the, there is little doubt that it was always here. Cancer was always here in its various forms um, in ancient history. Um, and it, there's, to me, very little doubt that it's part of our future. Um, it is, our, it is part of our genetic future. There is, there is no doubt about that. Uh, and it comes from a very simple idea. I also think it's a very profound idea, which is that the very genes that make us successful as multicellular organisms, if you mutate those genes in, in certain sequences, certain ways, you unleash uh, a highly successful cell. And one of the phenotypes of a highly successful survivor cell is cancer. So uh, it, is, it, it, is, it is not a coincidence that the very genes that allow our embryos to grow, our hands to grow, our feet to grow, 
if you mutate them in inappropriate contexts, will ultimately release the disease that kills us. Um, well, well, let's take that a step further and, and just talk about the survivability of a species to evolve and adapt to, uh, to its circumstances. That's sort of the upside of evolution, right? But you're saying um, the, there's, this is the flip side. This, if, if you're going to have mutations that allow adaptability, this is the price we pay. This is, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, again, these, it, it, so this is, this is hard to prove experimentally, although people have tried to do this experimentally to ask the question, if you suppress mutability um, in primordial organisms, do you get an organism that's more fit or less fit? The answer is quite clear usually. You get organisms that are less fit. So mutability change um, is, is one of the things that is, uh, that, is, that is a profound inheritance that we have from evolution, um, but we, have a, we pay a price for that. We pay a price for the survivability of ourselves. We pay a price for aging. We pay a price for uh, our capacity to uh, create organs. We pay a price for our capacity to have stem cells. Um, that same capacity that gives us the, the ability to have stem cells, which are cells that have incredible expansile potential, uh, and, and behave in ways that can quickly adapt to uh, very different circumstances by dividing rapidly and populating uh, tissue or contracting and going to sleep when circumstances demand. Uh, if you now take that very same property and you mutate those very same genes, you get a cell that can divide inappropriately when, it, uh, when circumstances come and, and then uh, go into dormancy uh, maybe when you give it uh, toxic therapies, which is, of course, a fundamental phenotype of cancer. So I think that it is, it, is a, it, is a, it is a scientific idea, it is a biological idea, it is a physiological idea, and ultimately I would argue it's a philosophical idea that, that, the, that, the, that the consequences of the success of cellular revolution are, are, uh, are, um, have, have, have left us with vulnerabilities, um, and, and uh, we did not get a free lunch. And yet, we hear all sorts of researchers and news reports saying the end of cancer is near. We're, in fact, we've heard people say, it's, we're going to end cancer in our lifetime. Um, are, are those folks just crazy, or what is I that? I think some of them are crazy. Uh, <laughs> Um, and I used to say this with uh, more uh, reservation. I think I say it less with less reservation now. Um, I, I go back to, a, to something that I, that I saw, which was on Richard Dole's um, uh, office, which I thought was wonderful, which is to say, death in old age is inevitable. Uh, the job of science is to prevent death, uh, unanticipated deaths in unanticipated times. Uh, and that is a, I, f I find that, a, that that is a perfectly reasonable goal. Say that one more time. Death in old age is inevitable. Yeah. Uh, our goal is to prevent, and the words are important. Um, the original words were, this is not Dole's formulation, but the original words were unanticipated deaths in unanticipated times, hmm. uh, which is to say that some people who are old and very healthy, uh, for them, death can be unanticipated as well. So, you know, the, the job, I think, um, I think the job is to create a kind of reconciliation, and we're far from there yet. So if you're saying to me that we will have a more profound 
more proximal reconciliation with cancer in the next few decades? I think the answer is absolutely yes. I think, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm as much a sober optimist as anyone else. Um, but on the other hand, I think that if you're going to say to me, we're going to turn around the, the entire spectrum of complex cancers within the next five years, I think that's a little crazy. All right. So you came to this country at age 19, uh-huh. correct, from New Delhi. You went to Stanford. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You got a PhD at Oxford. And you get a degree from Harvard Medical School. Then you write a book. You're first. It wins the Pulitzer Prize. You see where I'm going? Uh, you're doing a movie with Ken Burns. Don't you, don't you think this is a little unfair to the rest of us? <laughs> Aren't you just a little bit ashamed of yourself? <laughs> what am I supposed to say? Uh... <laughs> all right, all right. We'll just skip over that part. So I'm, I'm struck. I'm, I'm also struck by the way you wrote this book, The Emperor of All Maladies. It, you wrote this in, according to some accounts, ten and twenty minute bursts. Seriously? So, and it's that serious. Um, I, uh, in a. It, Creatively speaking, I'm incredibly indisciplined. I, 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 I can tell you a couple of things that I figured out about my own life uh, when, I was, when I was learning to write and when I was learning to do experiments. I am such a lousy experimentalist that I told myself, if I can get things to work, they've got to be right. You know, if, if, they, if they work in my hands, then they've got to, be, they've got to work in real life because, it, you know, because, because I, can, I can barely, you know, Distinct, discriminate between between one tube and another tube for Christ's sake. So anyway, so so by similar logic, I, I thought to myself, if I can explain things in a way that passes muster to my own sense of judgment in this book, then I, I, I will trust that, and I will allow myself to have the liberty to play with narrative structure. We talked a little bit about this before, in a way that does service to the book. Uh, to the to the to the bigger questions in the book, um, and so some of the consequences of that were uh, I will respect my process of writing. My process of writing is extremely linear. I begin with the first word. I'm, I'm you know I've written more. I've written. I'm in the middle of another book. I begin with the first word and essentially end with the last word. That's not totally true. Obviously, I delete. I move. I, I move things. But what I don't do, what I cannot do, is I can't write. And you know, people would say, "Oh, you know, stop that chapter there and just move on and write in the middle, and you'll come back to it." I can't do that. That that was my process. So, so that was one piece of the process. And the second piece of the process was, I thought I thought that as a writer, I would liberate myself from. From, from the standard shtick of writing, which is, you know, you have a desk. You, I couldn't produce a single word uh, sitting at a desk. So instead, I decided that I was going to write in bed. Um, so I wrote this. I wrote all of Emperor in bed, um, essentially. I kept piling books up uh, further and further all around me. Um, and I would start it. I would start sort of in the evening, and I would work very well. Actually, also early in the morning. So then later, when I uh, when the when the when the book was done, um, I was feeling, oh my God, now I'm a real writer. I should go and make do writerly things. Like I should buy myself a desk. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what writers do. They have like rooms to write in or something. So I got all of these accoutrements, and I couldn't produce a single word. Hmm. I was sitting in my office, not producing a single word. And then I had the genius inspiration, I said, why don't I put a bed into my office? 
I love and, it. And I did. So right in the middle, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sitting there in my medical office, and in the, my medical office is a fold-out cot. Yeah. And I go inside, I sit on my fold-out cot, and I write. And now I'm writing again because, you know, that was one no, of you've the, got a place for it. <laughs> a place for it, exactly. <laughs> so I have, I have, like all people, I have, you know, I have idiosyncrasies, I have eccentricities, and my general philosophy is if, if it works, don't, don't try to break it. Sure. You know, one of the other things about your book, uh, besides my respect for cancer, was the fervor that doctors had in trying to uh, treat patients. But it was pretty brutal. Some of yeah. the things that, that happened there were pretty brutal. Cancer wards had to be equipped certain ways so that the patients wouldn't kill themselves right. because of some of the, uh, the treatments. So there's obviously an ethical component here. Of, um, of doctors experimenting on patients, yep. essentially. Are, are we still doing that? Well, let me take a step back um, and, and sort of ground, uh, ground one important f- feature of this conversation. I spoke a little bit about this before. I want to, want to carry this theme a little bit forward, which is I'm interested, um, and I described this just, just a few, few minutes ago to you, uh, I'm interested in the structure of knowledge, um, and cancer is a lens, probably I would argue that one of the most important lenses that allows us to investigate the structure of the acquisition of knowledge in the 20th and 21st century. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by that, and I gave this analogy before, if you look at, if you look at the 14th or 15th century, or if you look, look even earlier, the plague um, becomes not just a prism by which you can view and imagine society, it becomes probably the prism by which you can view and imagine societies. In other words, you cannot describe the structure of parts of medieval society without taking into account the devastation, but psychological devastation, the the medical devastation, et cetera, that, that was caused by the plague. Well, the, the, the percentage of the human race that was just That's wiped right. out by that. Right. Um, similarly, I mean, and, and when we were just talking about that, it is very difficult to have to encounter the history of the mid-1980s or early 1980s and late 1970s in the United States without taking into account, without seeing with, with a clarifying prism, HIV and AIDS. Um, you, cannot, you cannot do it. It would be a misapprehension. Um, I would argue that it's becoming progressively a misapprehension to try to understand the structure of knowledge, structure of societies, without looking at cancer. Cancer provides us with, and, and which is why I think, uh, I, you know, I didn't initiate this interdisciplinary, interdepartmental conversation that happened here around cancer, but I instantly understood why it could be that. The, 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 uh, it was so obvious to me that this, this, this could be an interdisciplinary conversation because of the variety of issues that it raises. So much so, and, and you know, just, just, to, just to reiterate this point, which is to say that um, society is viewing cancer in a mirror and, mir- and cancer is viewing society in, in an identical parallel mirror. They are two parallel mirrors that are reflecting each other, and the images are receding out into infinity. And you cannot, uh, you cannot get, I think, a hold of 
you cannot get the complete hold of contemporary American culture, contemporary culture in the West without contending with the fact that cancer has put a pallor on this, um, has changed the way we think about mortality, has changed the way we think about struggles against mortality. It's changed the way we think about what we can do, what is achievable, what's not achievable, the nature of our hubris, the nature of human arrogance, the nature of our successes, the nature of ingenuity. The, uh, it all falls out. In that story is every story. Um, so now we're back to, though, doctors experimenting and with their patients. And that goes back to the idea of doctors experiment with, experimenting with their patients. So you can, you can write a, and, and you know, if you look at, if you look at Sidney Farber's first experiments with, um, with patients, uh, you can certainly write a, a, an enormous tome on, uh, on, on the nature of that experimentation, what was good and bad about it. It's, it, it's, it was very clear, if you, speak to the, if you speak to the researchers from the 1950s and 1960s, they will clearly tell you that the ambience that we have created of patient safety in 2014, they will unabashedly tell you, is harming cancer research. They will tell you that, 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 that we have become too conservative in cancer research. And you say, really? I mean, is that, could that possibly be true, that we've become too, too, too timid, too diffident in cancer research, that we, we've lost some of the spirit? But, they, but many of them, I, I, I can tell you, I, I, did the, I, made, I did these interviews, are convinced that that's the case. So that leads to a question. I mean, this is a national question. This should lead to a conversation immediately. That, you know, are we being too diffident? Uh, you know, is it true? Have we invented ourselves a network of, 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 uh, of, of important guides, important stopgaps in safety that is now harming ourselves? Now, who's going to have that conversation without you, without, you know, all of us being involved? This is a conversation which involves all of us. I mean, which, where are you going, what line are you going to draw? Now, you, you have to realize doctors can't draw that line. Patients can Patients, I would say patients are the only people who can, really. And by saying patients can, I really mean everyone can, because all of us are patients. So we can, as patients, as, as people on whom illness is visited, and people who struggle against illness, people who defend ourselves in our struggle against illnesses, people who defend the people who try to, to define the borderlands of what is normalcy and illness. So... This is a job that doctors actually do quite poorly. This is not a doctor's job. Well, okay, but what, what is the patient's job here? Okay, so I've, I've been treated for cancer. Should I be offering myself as a subject for, for my doctor to say, well, let's try this, well, let's try that? I mean, do I have an obligation there? No, you have for, no to, obligation. To move knowledge forward? Um, so it depends. So I, I would say, yes, you have an obligation to move knowledge forward, but the way you have the obligation to move knowledge forward is to participate um, vociferously, vehemently in a conversation. If this was your issue, yeah, if yeah. you were interested in this issue, mm-hmm. is to participate vociferously, vehemently, pushing the boundaries of this conversation, asking the question that we have sort of become inept at asking, or many questions that we become inept at asking, are we, are we too diffident today? Uh, should we be advancing the, the treatment of cancer in particular ways that we're ignoring right now? How should we fund this effort? Who's going to pay the money for it? Um, that's not a question that doctors can answer. They're terrible at asking that question. They, 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 you know, this, is, this is not their job. Um, so who should? 
you should. Uh, you know, you should. You're, you're a journalist. You should. You should. Uh, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a father who's lost their child to leukemia. You should. You know, you, you're a woman with breast cancer. Um, and you know, uh, guess what? When 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 that when 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 the when the chips were laid down, the, the bravest among us did. Hmm. Um, when the chips were laid down, the bravest among us uh, uh, were were you know w- were participating in ACT UP trying to say, look, doctors can't figure out whether or not to move uh, AIDS drugs into trial. We will act up. Uh, when, the, when, when, when the chips were down, the bravest women with breast cancer were outside Genentech saying, let's expedite the trials. Um, you know, I feel, that, I, feel there's, I feel that we are becoming anemic. Uh, our public conversation about cancer is becoming anemic. It's, becoming, it's become too technical. Um, it's become technical. We're told about advancements, about cancer, you know, about microscopic advancements that can change one thing or the other thing. But there's a groundswell conversation, which is, to me, that's missing, which is, where are we going? Why are we going there? Um, who guides us? Who should we le- lean to as guides? Who operates this machine? Uh, is, there, is, there a central, is, is there a central goal here? Who funds that central goal? Are we funding it enough? Uh, who governs whether who governs that fine line between the autonomy of patients and the autonomy of uh, and, and and science? So 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 let's have it out. Let's well, have it out. And unless we have it out, this 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 welter will not welt. Don't we depend on the National Institutes for Health to do this, or the FDA, or insurance companies, or Columbia University researchers? Or is, that's we're kind of counting on those or entities, aren't we? The National Institute of Health is a is a, the National Institute of Health depends on you, uh, and and in in a in a perfectly symbiotic synergistic relationship, you depend on the National Institute of Health, um, and then the minute you begin to forget this 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 symbiosis, the minute either of this conversation becomes one directional that you think that you that that that, that, that this that this that this very close relationship gets gets uh, broken down. I think you. I think. I think the community around illness, cancer, cancer being one of them, begins to suffer. The conversation around illness begins to suffer. All right. Let's let's shift over to um, genetic profiling. Let's, genetic let's, profiling. Okay. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. We know how to better treat an individual's cancer now, right? Because it because we've come to the conclusion, thanks to people like you, that. Um, this person's cancer is not the same as that person's cancer. Breast cancer is not breast cancer. Uh, so we, we've come to an individualized kind of uh, treatment. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's a direction that many cancers have been moving, yes. And so is everybody on board with this? Is the FDA on board with this? Are insurance companies on board with this? Because this looks fairly specific, which strikes me as expensive. It's not clear that I'm on board with it. Um, Why? Because of several reasons. So... You know, it is very important for the world. It's, I think it's very important for researchers to be highly skeptical of the most fashionable ideas in research at any point of time. This is our job. This is, mm-hmm. this is, you ask me what the job of a, of a physician or, or a scientist is. The job of a physician or a scientist, this is what we do quite well if we do, do it well, which is to be... To be, to be, you know, instead of saying to, to, to thine own sense self be true, it is to say to thine own self be false. 
um, which is to constantly be skeptical of the, the prevailing fads in cancer research. There is little doubt, I think, that the cancer genome is showing us one very clear signal, which is to say that there is immense, profound diversity in cancers. So one leukemia differs from another leukemia in very critical ways. What's also showing us are two things. Number one is that there are deep commonalities sometimes between leukemias. Maybe the pathways may be slightly different. Maybe the mutations are different, but there are some commonalities. And the one question is, in fact, are we appropriately in, in, in that right moment between figuring out the common pieces and the, and the diverse pieces? The second thing that it's showing us, through the, again, through, through the fundamentals of genomics, is that two cancers that maybe look very different from each other under a microscope, a gastrointestinal stromal tumor and a leukemia of some sort, in fact, resemble each other. So at the same time that there is this, this, the field is bursting, as it were, with diversity, there is an attempt to unify things. I'll give you one very good example of that. We were just talking about it. Immunological therapies for cancer, uh, which are actually highly successful. Um, if you said to me, that, oh, you know, every cancer is so diverse that we will never be able to use immunological therapies against leukemias, I, I might say, well, maybe that's right. But in fact, they work. Uh, the immune system for some cancers doesn't seem to care what particular mutations you have. They actually recognize the cancer. So this is a long-winded way of saying is that, that, that one must constantly create, and this is what, what scientists can do if they're, if they're really being thoughtful about it, one must constantly create a theory and its opposition, a fad and the anti-fad, and evaluate them at the same time so that we don't get trapped because, you know, because science is a story. It wants you to believe a story. It wants you to convince you of a story. That's what it, it's very powerful. It is one of the most powerful stories we tell ourselves. But just like a reader of a story remains skeptical of the story itself, a great reader of story remains skeptical of story, of storytelling, a scientist remains skeptical of the story of science. Um, I think that's what's, that's what's very powerful about science. So fads will come and go. Uh, they will create advancement. Um, but we have to remember that, you know, Look for diversity when there's unity. Look for unity when there's diversity. I think there's a kind of back and forth in, in this, which is very important, not to get stuck in a particular way of thinking. So every time there's some new discovery or some new report or, or whatever, you, rather than say, isn't that great? That's just awesome? You're, you're saying, let's, let's not get too excited about this. No, yet. no, no. I, I'm super excited about new discoveries. You know, I, I try to make discoveries in, in myself. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, when I, when I, I'm extremely excited about discoveries. And I think that, I think that, I, 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 you know, I, I'm the opposite of, of, of someone who's pessimistic about the future. Um, however, I do think that discoveries happen in a space. I think those, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the, it is precisely the culture of skepticism that allows great discoveries to happen. That okay. if you lose one, you lose the other. Um, great discoveries are exciting because they arise out of cultures that are skeptical of their greatness. Sure. All right, so... Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure somebody here tracked with that. <laughs> yeah. Did anyone understand? <laughs> no, no, we all, we all got it. Um, all right, so let, let's talk about what you tell patients. I mean, okay. there are some really, really profound things in your book about 
what, what you're willing to say to a patient mm-hmm. about how much hope to have or, or here's, here's kind of the straight, uh, the straight information. And, and yet, in Sunday's New York Times, there's an op-ed uh, in there about how doctors lie to their patients. I bet it is. <laughs> right. So, so how much, let, let's say because of the genetic profiling that, that you've done on a particular person, you can see even some probabilities of what this person is likely to encounter down the line. Do you feel like you've got an obligation to, to tell the patient all of that? Or, or should you, like the op-ed piece, should you just lie to them? Um, well, the, the, the problem with lying and telling truth is that we think about we're, we think that this is a process that happens in a single unit of time. Um, but in fact, good medicine is practiced longitudinally. Um, it has to be. So, uh, so if you speak to people who really understand this, and you, you know, know better than people who practice, really practice palliative care, they will tell you that it's a longitudinal process that that and and I, I actually wrote an, I wrote a piece about this which was titled "Hope is Negotiable." Right. Uh, in, in fact, you, you you were quoting Jerome Groupman when, when when you say hope is a vital organ. Yes. Which just really struck me as profound. Yes. So so uh, so Jerry believes that hope is a vital organ. I agree with him. Uh, I also believe it's negotiable. And by negotiable, I mean that. The, that, that hope on day one of chemotherapy for a patient is not the same as hope on, on day 31 of chemotherapy for that same patient when he or she might be relapsing. Uh, they're different things. Those two, the organ has changed. Um, and just like you wouldn't operate, uh, it's a dynamic organ. Um, it's, it's part of the way we intercept the world. And you have to be with them uh, through the process. Um, and good doctors are. They have the capacity to negotiate. They have the capacity to understand, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what happens next. Uh, I, had a, I had an interesting conversation, actually, sort of relevant. Um, I just finished. I do uh, some very intensive time in the wards uh, three times a year. Um, and the, there, was a, there was a medical resident who uh, was presenting a case. And they, we get up every, every morning. There's a cases are presented, and the, um, the, the resident was presenting a case in the following manner, uh, with all good intentions, uh, was saying, you know, who would name the patient, uh, Mrs. Grace Jones, uh, give you an age, say 61 years old, say she has metastatic breast cancer, and then would say, DNR, DNI, uh, saying that she has said that she doesn't, DNR means do not resuscitate, and DNI means do not intubate, which means uh, don't take extreme measures right. uh, if some adverse event was to happen. And then we'll go on to the next, Mr. Mr. Morris Smith, 64, prostate cancer, DNR, DNI. It was like a vital sign. It was like they were reciting a vital sign for every patient. So I stopped the, the, the resident in the middle. I said, why are you telling me, for every patient, why are you telling me DNR, DNI? And they said, well, you know, that's because that's the official way that we communicate with each other, telling you whether patients should be have heroic interventions or non-heroic interventions. And I said, well, wait a second. The purpose of that code is to clarify a goal, right? So if the code 
code stands for a goal. So unless you tell me what the goal is, you can't tell me what the code is. So I need to find out what the goal of this patient is. Is the goal of this woman to live because she wants to live to see her son graduate, right? Now, DNR, DNI doesn't capture that. So if you want to communicate, you know, you, we have, I mean, let's be pragmatic. We have a very busy time in the hospital. Um, so you don't, I, need, I don't need that information for every patient. But if you're trying to communicate to me what the goal of the patient is, then it behooves you to go and find out what is the goal of the patient. Is, and, and tell me, is that goal mismatched? Is that goal real? Is it completely out of whack? That's the information I need. Now, so what was amazing about this is that it's, as a, you know, this was, this, this was during teaching rounds. All, all of a sudden, it's like as if bulbs went off in everyone's heads. They were saying, oh, wait a second. So that's what the real purpose of all of this is. That, 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 that we encode information, but the code is a mechanism to get to the real information. The real information is goal. So, I mean, and you, can, you, can, you, can, you can extend this out into any part of medicine, right? Sure. Well, I'm thinking about what if the goal is I, I don't want to be treated at such a level that I'm going to lose my eyesight or I'm going to, I'm going to you know, some of the other uh, treatments where they carve out, you know, a whole section of a person's chest or something like that. And somebody's saying, I don't, that isn't my, that isn't where I want to go. So is that a goal? That is very much a goal. And then, you, you know, and, and it depends. And this is, this is why, this, this is why it's important to be cognizant of the limits and the, uh, and the, and, and the precision of medicine, which is to find out, well, what does that mean to you? Uh, uh, why, what are your fear? What are the fears here? The fear is that you're going to lose your hair. The fear is you're going to lose your eyesight. The fear is you're going to lose your uh, function, autonomy. Um, so I think one of the goals in cancer medicine is to get to those fears. Um, okay. And it's very important to get to the fears because otherwise you're just going to practice in a vacuum. Okay, so addressing those fears and, and trying to be cognizant of hope and knowing about goals, does that collide ever with just pure ethics? Are, it, 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 it doesn't collide. It lives in the domain of ethics. It is part of the fundamental domain of ethics, which is to say, you know, the, the reconciliation of, of goals to reality is one of the fundamental goals of, of, of medical ethics. I mean, you know, how, how do you rec- reconcile these? It's, a fund, it's one of the fundamentals of palliative care. And oncologists have to learn and have learned how to practice palliative care. It's one of the, it's one of the, it, it should be, and it has been, one of the fundamental requirements of all medical professions, oncology aside. If you, if, if you want to do medicine, you know, you have to begin to first understand what, is, what does it mean to, to practice palliative care? What, what does palliation mean? It means to re- it is a process of reconciliation. And how do you reconcile? People have different ways to reconcile, mm-hmm. but it's, it is fundamentally a process of reconciliation. All right, so so let's talk about another dark side that comes out of uh, that comes out of your book. Where, I can talk about lots of dark sides. Where, <laughs> there, there are so many dark sides, where where you show the dark side of cancer research's history, a little fraud, a little corruption, a little egomania, a little arrogance, research groups that won't talk to each other. It seemed like you were describing the Department of Homeland Security or 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 the NSA. You know where where you've got. You've got this worship, I think this was your phrase, this worship of hierarchy and orthodoxy and tradition. 
why couldn't they get along? Why, why, speaking of goals, why couldn't they just say, here's well, our well, goal? Well, let, let us also say that this is also a story of resilience, ingenuity, uh, 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 performance outside the call of duty, uh, courage beyond capacity of human imagination, of imagination, of, uh, of, of researchers who went out of their way, patients who went, advocates who went out of their way. So, so the, the, it, It's both. Yes, and this is not a dark, to me it's not a dark story. But if you want to explore the dark sides to the story, um, absolutely. But I, I said before, I'm interested in the structure of knowledge. I'm interested in the nature by which knowledge is acquired. And it is acquired through mechanisms that are, as you would put it, light and dark. Uh, the, the, the archaeology of human knowledge shows us, the history of human knowledge shows us that, you know, knowledge is not acquired in, in ways that are, uh, that are sort of, uh, 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 pleasant through and through, uh, that, 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 that built into the very mechanisms of desire um, are mechanisms that, that create all this dark matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Is it any different now? Have things improved on, on those kind of communication lines, or are there the, the same kind of sniping that's going on? I think, the, I mean, I think, I think the, 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 the fundamental structures will remain the same. They are amplified. They're, uh, you know, we invent institutions to, in, 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 in good times, we invent institutions to ameliorate against uh, these flaws. In bad times, we invent institutions that amplify these flaws. Um, and one of the jobs, one of our jobs is to figure out, is, the, is an institution being invented to, is, is, it, is it servicing human flaws or is it, is it actually uh, ameliorating them? And, and, and you will often find that there are institutions that do a, a disservice. Uh, yeah. uh, so, so I, th- I think, I think uh, you know, I, uh, I, think, I think there's, there's, the, there, there's this, this quality. I mean, so, so it's, it's very important, I think. I mean, just like in narrative structure, it's very important to discriminate between content and form. Um, so the content of what's happening in cancer medicine is changing all the time. Um, the content of what is happening in, in our interception with any new illness is changing all the time. But I suspect its form is not changing. And by that I mean the, the form is driven by, by very ancient primordial human impulses. And those impulses can be very benign and they, they have a dark, dark side to them. I suspect that in 2743 we can have the same conversation because I think that in 2743, we will, have a co- we will have a conversation which I'll say, the content is totally changed, but the form seems to resemble, the form by which we arrived at this incredible piece of knowledge seemed to res- resemble the Mahabharata or some you know, Indian epic that was written in you know, some, some very, very prior century at that point of time. Okay, so, so this brings me to kind of the focus on, on, on the content. Yep. Are, we, are we spending enough giving enough attention to prevention or, or too much to treatment? Uh, is, and and where, where are we on prevention? So I think, I think you know, uh, prevention, I think it would be fair to say, unless someone's going to throw a knife at me from the audience, I think prevention research was, was for a long time stuck in a very difficult place because of the nature of of. Of, of the study, which is to say that, um, you know, in order to find, I mean, it, it's actually quite, a, it, if you think about it, it becomes very obvious in a second, which is to say that in order to, if you, if you have a very rare cancer, 
that is caused by a very rare event. Those things stand out like sore thumbs. Like, so I'll give you one example, mesothelioma that's caused by asbestos exposure. The people who got really uh, enormous amounts of asbestos exposure were shipyard workers, for instance. They had a high incidence of mesothelioma. The confluence of these two things is like an eclipse. You, know, you, can, you don't get these things normally, and it, it becomes very clear epidemiologically, so that's fine. Now, so that's the, most, that's the clearest category. Then there's an intermediate category, which is you have, a, um, you have a rare cancer, but it's caused by a common exposure. Um, and there are several examples of that. Um, those are a little bit harder to find, with, were a little bit harder to find with epidemiological methods, but they could still be found. The most, ironically, uh, the most difficult to find using classical epidemiological methods were if you have a common cancer that's incited by a common carcinogen. So imagine that there's something that raises your risk of breast cancer by 2%. Um, breast cancer is common. That 2% difference is small, but its impact on human populations is enormous because the incidence of breast cancer is enormous. So in fact, the difference of 2% in breast cancer can, be, can have a huge impact on human lives, mm-hmm. 5%, 10%. Those were the hardest to find because classical epidemiological methods, and I can talk about them in the book, are, are actually not geared to find those. The change is that those methods have started to change, and they've become enormously empowered by molecular biology, by, the new, by, by a, a fleet of new biological uh, techniques, which allow you to now begin to capture that behavior, that 10%, 15% behavior. And now the challenge is converting that into, uh, into prevention. So sifting through signal and noise, to use uh, relatively uh, conventional ways of thinking about it, sifting through signal and noise and saying, where is signal, where, where is noise, to try to figure out what's really, you know, what is, is there, are, is there a link between certain exogenous estrogens and breast cancer, right? I'm saying this because remember, remember how difficult it was to figure out that, it, that, that there was a link between women taking exogenous estrogen for uh, a menopausal therapy and breast cancer. So here is a captive population of women who have either been given or not given a drug which raises estrogenic levels, which is a known uh, cofactor in breast cancer. And we're asking the question, was there an increase or not increase? And it took a 10-year study to prove that using classical methods. The hope is that you can get to much, much more thoughtful, fine-tuned mechanisms to address these kinds of questions with biology. This has been called opening the black box of epidemiology. Imagine, you know, carcinogens went in, something happened, cancer came out. What happened in this black box? Could you open up this black box and start to look at the mechanisms and thereby try to be much more proactive about prevention? So I think, and that's been, that's a, that's been a rich area, I think, in, in, in cancer research. Is something like the CVS drugstore chain saying they're not going to sell tobacco products anymore, is that going to have any impact on prevention? I think it'll have some impact on prevention. I'm not sure it'll have a gigantic impact on prevention. Um, Seems like a token. Well, I don't, I don't want to presume motives here, but I don't know. It, 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 what, what can be done to, by just the rest of us, not the researchers, but by the rest of us? Uh, so there was, there's a very interesting study which was done, uh, which, uh, which, uh, um, which actually rose out of another very interesting study. So this is, um, 
I'll tell you the first study because it's interesting, and then I'll go on to the second and third study, which was done uh, by a group of uh, scientists in which, which was called, loosely has been colloquially called the, the happiness bubble or the happiness project. It's a very interesting study. So what they asked, uh, they, they asked the following question, which is that they went to, um, let's say, a village. Um, it was actually a small town. And they mapped every social network in that town. Um, so, you know, if your Uncle George is, is mapped to you because he's your uncle, you, the guy you play golf with is mapped to you because through your golfing exchange, et cetera, et cetera. So they went to a, a town, and they mapped every social network. Um, whether you liked someone or disliked someone doesn't matter. You still get mapped to them. Uh, nonetheless, so, you, so you, create a, you create a web, as it were. And then they asked the question, they dynamically asked the question, how does this network behave in terms of happiness? over time. So if you are happy, um, is your neighbor happy, your social neighbor? And if your neighbor is unhappy, are you unhappy, and so forth? So you could get some correlational, you could actually dynamically map this correlation. I'll make it relevant in a second. <laughs> no, I'm trusting you here that, that we're going somewhere. Yes, right. So a very interesting thing was, was found with this, which is to say that this social interactome, uh, to use a fancy word, was actually quite predictive of happiness. In other words, the interaction network was highly predictive. There were nodes of happy people, um, and there were nodes of unhappy people, and these nodes moved together in space and time. So over time, these nodes flickered on, flickered off, as if they behaved almost organismally. This study was then repeated with obesity. Um, and similarly, there were nodes. Now, again, it becomes harder because now there's genetics that begins to enter. We know this powerful role of genetics. But in fact, there are nodes which flicker on and off. So there are nodes that cluster uh, within a town of, of certain behaviors. And then it was repeated with smoking. So the question that was asked was, could you, if you mapped smoking behavior across a 10-year period onto this social network, could you make sense of this? And it's a very interesting study because what happens is that when someone flickers off on this node, predictively, that entire node flickers off. So, and by, by that, I mean that if you stop smoking, mm-hmm. your neighbor who plays golf with you actually stops smoking with you. Hmm. Uh, and so does your Uncle George. And if you continue to smoke, you actually cluster yourself with other smokers. So this network begins to move. Now, what does this say? This says something very important, which is to say that smoking, therefore, is as much a disease that lives in a social interactome as it lives in, a, in addictive behaviors, as it might live in genetic propensities, as it might live in, 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 a, in, a, in a cultural realm. And that is to say that if you really wanted to get to the bottom of tobacco, if you really wanted to affect behavior change, what you might want to do is you might want to change it at, at this interaction level. Could, you, could that be a target? So just like we imagine targets in, in the human genome, could you imagine targets in the human social interactome? What would those targets be? Would you have to create counter networks that would, that would seed them, that would stop, this, stop particular kinds of behavior? Once again, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because, yet again, just that small behavior, studying that small behavior, not small behavior, studying that behavior, deeply illustrates the structure of human beings, our psychology, our networks, and our knowledge. Um, so again, you know, this is what's amazing about illness, is that it is, it is a, it is, it is, I would argue, the most profound lens that we have 
to understand wellness. It is the most profound. The, 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 the pathology is the most profound way we can understand physiology. Abnormalcy is the most profound way we can understand normalcy. Sure. So what are the things that are keeping us now, whether in our social structures or in our political structures or scientifically, what are the things that are keeping us from um, going to the next level of efficiency or effectiveness regarding diagnosis, treatment, prevention, any of that? What's, what's holding us back? So, so I, I don't think there's one answer. I think there are many things that are holding us back. Um, I certainly think that, that one kind of answer, and I was talking about this a little bit earlier, is that, I, I, again, I, I sense, I, this is a kind of a loose sense. I, 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 it's hard to say. I, I sense we're sort of giving up. Um, really? I, I think we're, I, I, sense that, I, I sense that we've lost a kind of energy that existed in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and I, wor- I, I worry about it. Um, I worry about the fact that we, the, on one hand, the, we, we're inundated with information. There's information coming at us from everywhere. But on the other hand, it, it seems to me that, that the energy that drove the changes um, that created uh, Mary Lasker's out of us, um, I, I sense it weakening. And, we don't, and I, we don't I have any champions. We have right, fewer right champions. We have we have less uh, urgency. Um, we have less. We, we are more. Dist- I would say we're more distracted. Uh, hmm. We've lost sight of our important questions. I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. I'll, tell, I'll give you an example. I was asked to speak at at MIT at at a, at a function, and. Um, this is an example of distraction, and, and it, was, it was a very, 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 very thoughtful conference, and it was the, I think the, it was the provost who organized it, or, um, uh, and, and he said, you know, what's wonderful thing about these new undergraduates that are coming to MIT is that they don't choose majors, they choose questions, um, which is a lovely thing to say, which is to say that they go into a, this is true for, I'm sure this is true for San Diego, they come in here and they're choosing questions. They want to say, my question is, whatever it might be, and I'm going to use classrooms or education as tools to try to solve that question. This is a wonderful thing. But here's my only problem with it. Who's telling whom what questions to ask? So is it an equivalent question to say, I'm going to build a better social network versus saying, I'm going to change the way we think about cancer? Um, to me, there are, in the world of questions, there's a hierarchy of questions. And I, I feel that we're getting distracted. I think that there's too much noise, and we've lost sight of, and I hate, I mean, I, there's no other way to put it, we've lost sight of the essentials. The essentials are, there are deadly diseases um, that contort human physiology. Uh, we, have be- we began to get a glimpse of what it would mean, what it would take, to solve many of these deadly diseases. Um, we made critical advances in trying to figure out their physiology. And at the moment when it was all set up, we began to lose steam. Um, and that worries me. I hope we don't. I hope well, we that's, don't. that's partly a political issue, isn't it? Funding coming from, uh, from a, a group uh, in politics who would say, this is important to us. But 
you're saying it's not that important to those decision makers. I think, it's not, I, think I think you would be surprised. Um, it, it, it becomes immediately important to those decision makers when their first loved one has cancer. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it transforms from someone else's problem to their problem. But you can't, I mean, statistically, it can't, it's not someone else's problem, it's your problem. It has to be, you know, it, it's going to be. There's no, there's no, if you can't, you, you know, you can't I'll have an argument about this, but, but that's, 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 that's the, that's the, that is the, that is the, that is the, that is, dis, that is the dissipating force that I, that I'm, that I, feel, I feel concerned about. That's the purpose of the film, by the way, is to remind us that it's not someone else's problem. Yeah. Are there some practices that are going on right now in cancer treatment that you think we're going to look back in 10 or 50 years or something like that and say, what were you guys thinking? I think there'll be many. I think that there are many practices like that. You want to to take some guesses? (laughs) I'm going to offend so many people by the end of this conversation that... (laughs) You'll have no friends left. No, that's what's nice about it. If you offend people, it's a great equalizer. If you offend everyone equally, then then you gain back all your friends from the beginning. True. Well, so, I mean, you know, we, we saw some of them. So we, we've seen some of them. So, so uh, for instance, we, we now know, after decades and decades of studying, that, um, that we need new methods of screening for breast cancer. We found that out last week, um, that, you know, that, that the old methods of screening for breast cancer aren't very successful. We knew that 10 years ago. We knew that 20 years ago. But 20 years later, we figured out this is now really, really, really true, <laughs> that, that those methods are ineffective, and therefore we need to go and to find uh, different methods of screening for breast cancer. Similar we, for prostate cancer. And we, I was just going to say that. We, we now know it's really, really, really true that if you screen indiscriminately for prostate cancer, that is going to be a problem. Now, I, I, I guarantee you that there's technology that exists today. Uh, you would not need to reinvent new technologies to figure out, for, for scientists to figure out, to discriminate between the aggressive variant of prostate cancer and the non-aggressive. There's actually many studies that are ongoing right now. We need to bring those studies to the clinic. We need to make tests out of them. We need to make them available to human beings. We need to make sure that people, in under, people who are particularly underserved, for instance, in prostate cancer, African-American men, uh, particularly underserved uh, it, it, by, by medical treatment in prostate cancer, get the appropriate tests, get appropriately diagnosed when they're and get appropriately treated, so that their lives can be can their, can their lives can be extended. So there is a there is a there is an enormous project that lies ahead. Uh, some of which techn- technologically is becoming solvable. Some of which remains unsolvable. Uh, there's you know there's, there needs to be. I would say, a, a, a vast marshalling of resources um, to, to solve this problem. And it doesn't exist. Where, do, where does... And it doesn't exist because you and I are beginning to give up. That's the reason it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist because we are losing a kind of energy in the face of one of the monumental challenges of our generation. I don't think it's overstatement to say cancer is one of the monumental challenges of our time. So, so let, me, let me wrap this up this way. I'm, I'm really struck by your sense of we've kind of given up. We, and, and so I'm, now I'm thinking, so where does that leave the developing world? If, if much of the developing world is counting on coming up with ways to treat things and, uh, and diagnose things and prevent things, and if we're 
just kind of losing steam here. Where does that leave everybody else? My point about talking about losing steam here is to energize ourselves. It is not to say we're losing steam and that's what it should be. It is, it is really a, a, what I'm trying to say is we have to, my point is to try to be vastly more energetic. When, so is to say that if, if we're losing steam, our job is to get energy. Um, we, we, have to, we have to bring in from ourselves, from our internal resources, the kind of resources that we've used to solve problems before. Um, uh, a, a wellspring of, of, of pressure, a wellspring of optimism, a wellspring of, of understanding. The, I mean, you know, there, is, there can be little doubt that the last 10 years, last decade or so, has, has exploded knowledge about cancer, cancer cell, cancer genetics, cancer genomics, cancer biology. We, the, the, the universities, the academic centers are exploding with knowledge. The, 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 the real question is, how does that knowledge get transformed into human prevention, human treatment? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that requires, I think, a renewed energy. We need to get that energy back. I think we will find it. I think we will find it. And we will find it in, in the United States. Um, I think we will transmit that energy to other countries. I think we will transit that, transmit that energy to our children. Um, and I think we, in the end, we will begin to solve problems. I think in the end, we will begin to solve this series of monumental problems. I have no doubt about that. Um, but I think it will require, uh, it'll require more energy than we have right now. Dr. Mukherjee, thank you so much for being oh, with pleasure. us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.